Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. Okay, here's a joke. What did the man say to the mushroom when he came into the pub? What? You look like a fun guy to be with. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan, and from APM American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download, an hour of culture, food, and humor to fuel your weekend conversations. You just got a joke from actor Emily Mortimer. That'll help break the ice. We'll speak to her later about her HBO series Doll and M. Plus, comedian Julie Klausner, creator and star of the Hulu show Difficult People, stops by to answer your etiquette questions. Also coming up, Kelly Carlin demonstrates why her dad, the late George Carlin, was not the typical patriarch. Dan Behar of the band Destroyer provides a dinner party playlist, and we learn how Joan Didion became Joan Didion. Can you hear the italics there? I kind of can, but first, small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. The European Commission is asking that EU nations share the responsibility of accommodating refugees and other migrants. Baltimore reached a settlement with the family of Freddie Gray. Queen Elizabeth has been greeted by cheering crowds on the day she became Britain's longest reigning monarch. Now for something you might not have heard, we are speaking with John Horn. He is the host of the arts and culture podcast and radio show The Frame from KPCC. John, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend? I'm talking about the rare power that some journalists have to kill off celebrities who are not yet dead. <laughs> Wait, was this a sci-fi movie that you saw a preview if of? If only it were. No, Terry Gilliam, the director of Monty Python and the Holy Grail, Life of Brian, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, Brazil, great filmmaker. His obituary was published Tuesday while he was still alive. Oh. <laughs> Where was this? In what paper? This is in the trade publication Variety. And Terry Gilliam, being a funny and smart person, had a lot of fun with that. Yeah, I can imagine. I'm surprised he didn't mention that it was only a flesh wound. He, he said he apologized for being dead, <laughs> especially to those who have already bought tickets to his upcoming talks. <laughs> Interesting. But I have to say, when I was working at the Associated Press, we would do this all the time. You write a very nice obituary about somebody before they die. Why so, do you need to do this in the age of Wikipedia? All you have to do is cut and paste and add the end date. You got to you know? write it. You got to make it sound good. You want something that uh, represents the person's life. So back in the late 1990s, I was working at the Associated Press, and there was a comedian and an actor you might have heard of. His name is Bob Hope. Oh, yeah. And Bob Hope. Uh, for our younger audiences, there's an airport named after him in Burbank. <laughs> and Bob Hope was not well. And so the Associated Press assigned me to write Bob Hope's obituary. Unfortunately, in 1998, five years before Bob Hope died, the AP published the obituary wow. with my byline. So I wow. killed Bob Hope five years before he died. <laughs> it was it was you. John, I have a question. Was the obit for Carrot Top's career, was that prematurely released? <laughs> that was written, real. actually, as soon as he started performing. Yeah, see, thanks for insight into the biz. Fascinating. John Horn, thanks so much for the small talk. Happy to still be alive and to be on your show. And now time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened in history and give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's like a martini, except the olive is made of history. Ooh, good one. It's conceptual. <laughs> first, let's give you the history part. Around this time back in 1813, America first said, uncle. Michelle Philippi explains. Samuel Wilson was the USA. Figuratively speaking... Sam's life wasn't especially remarkable. The son of Scottish immigrants, he grew up to run a meat packing business. When the War of 1812 rolled around, Sam supplied barrels of beef to the army. And that's when he became an American symbol. 
See, the beef barrels were stamped U.S. And soldiers joked the initials stood not for the meat's country of origin, but for the guy who'd shipped it, their good old Uncle Sam. In September 1813, Sam's local newspaper caught wind of the story and ran with it. Soon, Uncle Sam became the go-to nickname for the U.S. government. So when the superstar political cartoonist Thomas Nast needed to symbolize America, he drew a goateed guy in a star-spangled suit and named him Uncle Sam. The best-known Uncle Sam wasn't drawn by Nast, though. It was the one on that I Want You military recruitment poster, illustrated by James Flagg, who humbly based Uncle Sam's face on his own. Rumor has it, so he wouldn't have to pay a model. So that was the history. Now it's time for the booze to go along with it. I'm on the phone with Bob Fornicero. He is the general manager of The Ruck in Troy, New York, which is apparently where the original Uncle Sam came from. Uh, Bob, what drink did this uh, history inspire you to make? Well, this kind of inspired us to uh, start off with something that's a little bit of a blue-collar origin, but uh, locally sourced. I think a red, white, and blue collar would be more appropriate for Uncle Sam. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Starting off with 1.5 ounces of Cornelius Applejack. Okay, and what is Applejack? Applejack historically is one of the first spirits to be produced in the United States. It takes these guys roughly 60 pounds of apples to make each bottle. All right, well, what else is in your drink? One ounce of blackcurrant cordial. Okay. A half ounce of Hudson New York corn whiskey. And we garnish the cocktail with an Applejack cherry and a strip of hickory smoked beef jerky from uh, Damn Good Jerky Company. Wow. I wonder why they called it Damn Good Jerky. It's pretty damn good. Okay. It's interesting. Big Brother is also another name for the government related to the family, and people don't like that, but they like Uncle Sam somehow. Well, Uncle Sam's kind of one of those fun characters in history. But he does have that weird facial hair. He kind of looks like a relief pitcher. Uh, goatee. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I don't believe the real Sam Wilson had a goatee quite as extreme as that one. Yeah, I don't think if you're putting meat in barrels, you should have facial hair hanging around. You'd have to wear a little, uh, little hair net around your chin. <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> and Rico, in case it wasn't clear, the beef jerky part of the cocktail yeah. was a nod to Sam's role as a meat processor. Oh, okay. So it wasn't just a big garish symbol of American decadence sitting in there? Oh, yeah. Well, it was that also. It was a two-for-one. Oh, great. we say. I'll take it. (laughs) By the way, the name of that drink is The Government Lunch, and you can get the recipe for that and all our weekly cocktails delivered straight to your inbox as part of our weekly newsletter. Mm -hmm. We want you to sign up at dinnerpartydownload.org. Nice. Shows are dead fish built on the lakes But Uncle Sam's on Mars So we've had a drink, made some small talk, now it's time for some music. And here with song suggestions is the Canadian singer-songwriter Dan Behar, a.k.a. Destroyer. His unique voice, poetic lyrics, and constantly shifting pop sound have made him a favorite among English majors and indie music fans alike. United at last. As if they were different. A couple weeks back, he released his 11th full-length album. It's called Poison Season. Here he is with a monomaniacal list of party tunes. Hey, this is Dan Behar from the band Destroyer, and this is my dinner party playlist. Yeah. The first song that I would play at my dinner party is called Going to Monte Carlo by Van Morrison off of his record Born to Sing No Plan B. 
Kind of a deeply political record. What seem like easy listening ballads are really kind of like classic British working class damnations of late capitalism. It's man at his most kind of relaxed and kind of pissed off like he always is, but in a very mellow groove. And I think it's also really deceptive because it's a blues song about driving to Monte Carlo, <laughs> which is a very strange form of the blues because if you're going to Monte Carlo, maybe things aren't too bad for you. It's kind of a beautiful drive. You're probably loaded. I don't know. I kind of like that misguided critique of decadence. That's a classic man for me. The next song would definitely be End of the Rainbow, also by Van Morrison, also off the album, Born to Sing, No Plan B. No pile of gold near the end of the rainbow. No social ladder to climb around here. It's actually a full-on critique of the loss of the British labor class, <laughs> which to me seems like perfect music to listen to while you're having a dinner party with your friends. Too much for capitalism, too much for materialism. Every penny has got to be earned. I think End of the Rainbow would be kind of the apex of the meal. It kind of sneaks up on you and builds into like quite a crescendo. Probably more conducive to people having a bit more wine in them at this point, though it could also upset your dinner a little bit. That's not my headache. No pot of gold, the end of the rainbow. No pot of gold, the rainbow. I think for my third track, I would go with a song called Educating Archie off the record, Born to Sing, No Plan B by Van Morrison. And it really feels like a wind down song, what you would be having with your coffee and whiskey. You're a slave to the capitalist system, which is ruled by the global elite. It's usually like way more mystic and not as political. It was just kind of strange, unexpected. It really is like the most unabashed kind of distillation of all the stuff that the other songs kind of touch on, which is just the common human being being totally screwed by the state of affairs and business in the world today. But again, it's kind of like a really fun kind of blues vamp. You probably have noticed that my three picks were all from the album Born to Sing, No Plan B by Van Morrison. It's not a conceptual move on my part. Uh, it's not me trying to be funny. It's just a record that I've spent a lot of time with in the last couple of years and is like really maybe conducive to a bunch of people sitting around drinking and eating. If I was prodded to pick a song off the new Destroyer album, 
I would maybe choose a song called Forces From Above. I mean, it's supposed to sound like chase music or like spy music, which I think would maybe speak to Van a little bit. I tried to follow the lines to the letter. I was in love with you and your sweater. Oh, forces from above. steps it was getting on the evening progressed like a song but forces from above a dinner party soundtrack from Dan Behar aka destroyer he's on tour now in support of his album poison season and we assure you he has no affiliation with Van Morrison LLC that's right he's just a guy who knows what he likes and true. people coming up, you are going to meet several people we like, including film and TV star Emily Mortimer. Oh my God, you hate me. I hadn't noticed. You've been quietly hating me. What? We said we liked you. Jeez, we need a moment here. Emily. But stick around because the Dinner Party download will continue. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Coming up, I report from the front lines of the coffee versus tea wars. Sounds brutal. It actually is. Oh my gosh. And in a few minutes, Kelly Carlin reads from her new memoir about her dad, the late George Carlin. It gets a little crazy. Later, Joan Didion's biographer tells us about that great writer's glamour and doom. And actor Emily Mortimer, creator and star of HBO's Doll and M, tells us her favorite part of show business. It gives you all sorts of opportunities for making an audience squirm. <laughs> We'll hear about those, but first, let's learn some etiquette. Yes, each week you send in your questions about how to behave, and here to answer them this time is writer, actress, and cat aficionado Julie Klausner. Yay. She hosts the very funny pop culture podcast, How Was Your Week? Some readers first got a taste of her pointed sense of humor from her recaps of reality shows, which appeared on culture sites like Vulture and The All. But these days, she doesn't recap shows. You know what I'm going to say here, Julie. <laughs> She makes them. She, she makes, makes them. them. Yeah. The latest being the Hulu comedy series <laughs> Difficult People, which she also co-created. It stars Julie and the equally abrasive and hilarious Billy Eichner. They're pop culture obsessed, internet famous New Yorkers trying to become actually famous by any means necessary. And we're going to play a clip where they're pitching a guy on their latest big idea, bottled water from school library drinking fountains. Uh, the sales guy doesn't quite get it, and anyway, he sells water in boxes, which Julie and Billy are less than impressed by. No one wants to carry this. If they just had it in a nice, you know, b- bottle, like a plastic, plastic bottle, a glass bottle. bottle. He doesn't seem like a book person. No, you seem more like a kickball at recess type. He Maybe that's what it is. wasn't in the library. That's oh, the problem. He that's doesn't get what it, it is. Because he was the first guy picked for kickball. Exactly. We didn't We didn't ever get picked. No. We're not athletic people. We're not Chelsea Clinton. Yeah. Do you know? We're barely Chelsea Handler. You must love her. Oh. Oh, she's so bad. Oh, she's oh, so naughty. She's so, no, she says oh, what I, I think. I got drunk last night. Yeah. I'm so oh, drunk. My I, I, I've been party. so drunk for the last oh, five God. years I haven't written a joke. <laughs> And Julie, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. <laughs> I love that. For the record, we agree, library drinking fountains, they taste delicious. The best water I've ever had was from a, a water fountain in my public library growing up. Okay. Very cold. So that conversation did come from real life. And in this TV show, your character's named Julie. She writes TV recaps and hmm. she's trying to make it a showbiz. Crazy. Why for this show did you want to create this, you know, different version of yourself? Well, it is a different version of myself. Julie Kessler on the show is different from Julie Klausner because she's not as 
self-aware and gets very frustrated when she doesn't get what she wants and doesn't understand how she might be complicit. That's Mm. not you? I think it was probably a younger version of me to some degree, but uh, I definitely play her a little dumber than I think I've ever been. And less less self-hating and also less ashamed to confront people, which is something I never do. I just swallow all my feelings. Mm. Oh, good. Good. So we're going to, we have a list of mean things to say to you. Yeah, I'm going to take it all. (laughs) All that being said, though, there are so many metal layers to the show. On one hand, you you are satirizing people like this. They care way too much about shallow popular culture. But to get all the references, viewers themselves also have to be pretty into pop culture. And obviously you are to an extent in real life. What is the takeaway here? Is this a cautionary tale? I think that Billy and I have in common that we both grew up connecting very passionately to television and film instead of our peers. And uh, (laughs) I think being overly passionate about pop culture is a way of connecting to Mm. people instead of a person one-on-one. And when Billy and I sort of found each other, we realized we had very similar obsessions and we got each other's references and there was a kind of romance to that. So ironically, the thing that sort of kept you from making connections helped you make this connection. It's a good connection to have. Um, Just growing up, I think people use sports. I don't know. Well, we need to to ask about another facet of your show, which is uh, your boyfriend in the show. Julie's boyfriend is a PBS TV producer. Yeah. As public media guys, we have to wonder, what is the public media fascination about? Uh, some of it is from real life, but there is a, what I think is a very funny rivalry between PBS and NPR on the show. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. We are only going to deepen that in season two. We're mm. working on them having a softball game between the two of them. Which <laughs> We is, win, right? I don't think anyone wins, honestly. I think <laughs> I think America wins by watching. Um, isn't it fun to, to be acknowledged, though? I find that, you know, when, when people are gently ribbed, they're just excited for the attention. It felt really nice. Good, good. You see us, Julie. I'm glad. Um, all right. We've asked our listeners for questions. Are you ready for these? I am ready, yeah. This first question comes from Catherine in Maine. Catherine writes, My sister only wants to hang out with me when it's convenient for her. When I ask her to hang out, go for a run, shop, or get a bite to eat, she is always busy. How do I confront her with this without looking like, well, why don't you want to play with me at the age of 30? I mean, I I sympathize with Catherine's sister to some degree because I hate going out and doing things. (laughs) I mean, I really like staying in and watching Mm -hmm. stuff. But uh, at the same time, I think it's important to maintain a relationship with her that maybe is on shared terms. So maybe suggest, let's, I'm going to come over. We're not going to wear makeup. We're going to be in our sweatpants and I'm coming over and bringing over pizza. Maybe she just shows up at her door. Maybe Catherine can just go to her sister's no, door and be should... like, you can't avoid me now. No. Come on, why not? I'm not a fan of showing up unannounced. I was thinking more like watch TV outside. You know, Right. Like, and the glare of the sun. Yeah. Like meet, meet halfway. It's Maine though. It's probably will be snowing. That's true. And there'll be bugs there. Yeah. Not, I'm not a fan of nature. All right. I like animals, but their habitat I'm not crazy about. Suggest not wearing makeup, sweatpants, Pants and pizza. All right. There you go, Catherine. Here's something from Joe in Dallas, Texas. Joe writes, what should you do if someone shows up to your party uninvited? Oh, we already know how you feel about uninvited guests. Uh, here's the follow-up, though. What if that person is smash star Catherine McPhee? <laughs> A figure of some amusement for pop culture junkies. If Catherine McPhee showed up at my party, I would <laughs> I'd get into like that fetal rocking position and I'd rock back and forth mm. for a little while. Mm-hmm. And then I would feed her dogs... And then I would just make sure that she was taken care of, that none of the noises were too loud. 
she seems like she'd be sensitive to a lot of st- yeah. stimulation. Yeah. So I would, um, <laughs> I'd walk her to the corner, spit her down, and, and just make sure That's, she was tended to. This is interesting. So once a month, we have uh, Emily Post's great grandchildren answer behavior questions, mm-hmm. and that's the textbook answer for what to do when Catherine McPhee comes in. <laughs> that's what so, Emily Post wrote in the 1800s. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Fetal position, can yeah. of something for pets. Yeah, exactly. I mean, some things change, some don't. <laughs> some things are classics. All right, Joe in Dallas. All right, here's something from Mayor in Chicago, Illinois. And Mayor writes, I work with a lot of people in my city's rather sizable literary community. At social events, many of them often approach me with, quote, Hi, I'm so-and-so. What's your name? I then become peevish and remind them that we work together or I hired them. Come on, shouldn't they remember me? How can I better handle this? <laughs> how can I better handle this or how can I be more memorable? <laughs> I tend to remember the names of people that are either people I want to have sex with or uh, <laughs> I want to say like famous people because you, you're like, oh, Sharon Stone. Yeah. Is that, um, that the only solution? Make yourself sexually available or famous? Yes. Yes. Or tattoo your face. Have a face tattoo. There you go. All right. Super practical etiquette tips from Julie Klausner. Julie, thank you so much for telling our audience how to behave. Thank you for having me. Julie Klausner, the first season of her show Difficult People wraps up this week on Hulu. Plus, she has a podcast of her own. How was your week? It was fine. Thanks for asking. That's not what I meant. Folks, we know you are confronted with etiquette imbroglios every day. Don't suffer in silence. Type your problem into an email and send it to us. We live at dinnerpartydownload.org. And now, time to eavesdrop. There's only one person who knows what it's like to have comedy legend George Carlin as a dad, and that's writer and performer Kelly Carlin. Her new memoir is called A Carlin Home Companion, and it comes out this week. Today, we overhear an excerpt. Hi, everyone. This is Kelly Carlin. Here's a little story that we used to like to tell at cocktail parties. This takes place in like 1974. And uh, my parents and I had just gone on a really crazy Hawaiian vacation. Around 11 in the morning, the day after we got home from Hawaii, my dad rushed into my room and woke me with the words, Kelly? I have something important to tell you. Now, these words scared me to death because I was sure he was going to tell me that he was finally leaving my mom. I knew in my heart that it was the only thing that might finally make my mom get some help for her drinking. And so I was ready for it. I sat up in bed and braced myself for the blow of the news when he said, Kelly, the sun has exploded and we have eight, no, seven and a half minutes to live. What? You see, I knew my father had been doing lots of cocaine and God knows what other assorted chemicals in Hawaii, so I thought he was probably just freaking out or something, but he was my dad, and no matter how screwed up he was, he was still my dad. And so I got out of bed and went to have a look. When we got outside, the sun was blinding. You couldn't even open your eyes. I thought, my God, I can't see. My God, are we going to die? I didn't really think so. What I was hoping was that there was a very reasonable explanation. I offered up a few. 
Well, maybe it's the smog, or maybe it's just that L.A. sun is different from Hawaii sun. And then my mother chimed in. Uh, maybe it's the fact that you haven't slept for more than four frickin' hours in the last three weeks. She did have a point. Contrary to how it may have seemed at the moment, my dad was a very rational man. He decided that he needed to check and see if this phenomena was happening anywhere else on the planet. As he paced in the bedroom, he explained, We could call Doc in New York, but no, no, New York is three hours later, which might mean that the effects of the sun exploding wouldn't be so prominent on the East Coast. No, we need someone on this coast. I'm calling Joe. So Dad called his old friend, Joe Bellardino, in Sacramento. Hey, Joe, it's George. Well, I need you to go outside and check and see if the sun is okay. I think it may have exploded. Now, here was the moment of truth for me. Either the news was bad and the sun had definitely exploded, but my dad was a genius for being able to calculate something that involved the speed of light. Or the news was good and the sun hadn't exploded, but my dad had completely lost his mind to drugs, confirming once again that the only sane and rational person in this household was an 11-year-old girl who wanted donuts for dinner. And I could not talk about this with anyone. When I returned to school after the Hawaii trip, the day after the sun had not exploded, my teacher asked, so Kelly, how was your Easter vacation? Mustering a look of complete neutrality, I said, it was good, fine. It was fine. Kelly Carlin, her new memoir is called A Carlin Home Companion. It comes out this week, and you are listening to The Dinner Party Download from American Public Media. And now, the main course, the part of the show where we talk about food. Enrico, I'm a tea drinker, and I've made no secret of my struggle to win respect for my hot beverage of choice in this country. Mm -hmm. Like when you took a swing at that barista who forgot your honey? Courtney? That was crazy. We settled that out of court. That's great. In the rear view. Congrats. I'm talking about how it makes me sad that coffee culture keeps moving forward, while tea remains just a sad bag bobbing on the surface of a tepid (laughs) cup of neglect. Oh, that. Yeah, but there's hope in the form of Ucha. All right. This is a new cold tea drink that's starting to show up in stores around New York. It's made by a company called Drunken Meadow. And the other day, co-founder Furei Chang stopped by the studio with some. I asked her if tea will ever defeat coffee. You know, that's actually a question I get really, really often. Mm. And I don't think so, to be honest. <laughs> and you're a tea entrepreneur. So yeah. you're not, you don't even see that being the case. Why, why don't you think it can overtake coffee? I think... The Americans are just so used to the coffee culture that yeah. it's going to be really hard to erase. You know, everybody thinks tea. They think old people are drinking it or <laughs> they're thinking British Tea Party. Yeah. They don't associate it with it being cool or hip or anything yeah. like that. So you're not just like a tea entrepreneur. You come from a tea family. Am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, yeah, I do. Um, Tell me about your tea bona fides. <laughs> <laughs> so my family is originally from Taiwan. Okay. Uh, they're actually still there right now. Mm-hmm. We grew up in the countryside. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the beginning, they were kind of growing fruits, vegetables. My uncle decided one day, like, hey, everybody around us is growing tea. Mm-hmm. Let's try it. Smart idea. Yeah, so he, <laughs> he started doing that. Yeah. And we started growing oolong tea since 1991. 
Your company's called Drunken Meadow. Is that the sto- the origin story for your... Actually, it's actually a really, really interesting story. So Drunken Meadow, I got the name from uh, Chinese. And okay. in Chinese, it's Zui Cao Yuan, Drunken Meadow. And I got that because my great-grandpa, he was a poet. And when he started the farm, or when he lived on the farm, he would always write a lot of poetry. And then eventually throughout his life, he wrote an anthology. And then he named it Drunken Meadow. Huh. And I thought, hey... This what a cool a, way to honor yeah, him. Yeah, what a cool way to honor him. And he started something really, really cool. So I'm just going to take the name and keep it. All right. And yeah. so Drunken Meadow then, I'm so, so it's more metaphorical. Yeah. It's not like, let's get drunk in the meadow. No, but <laughs> you could do that if you want to, <laughs> by all means. All right. So the reason we have you here is because you have this product in the market that's making little waves called Ucha. Right. And the basis of that product is oolong tea. Yeah, it is. So tell me the definition of oolong tea versus black and green tea. So all tea come from the same plant. Mm -hmm. And you get oolong tea or you get green tea or black tea based on the process of making the tea. And oolong tea is is anything 30 to 80% oxidation is Mm. considered oolong tea. So this means a desiccated, dried out, or toasted? Yeah, it's dried out. So black tea is all cooked. It's fully oxidized. Black tea is fully oxidized, and green tea is none. Okay. Yeah, so in between that is considered oolong Mm -hmm. tea. So the reason why I think oolong tea is so special is the range is so broad. Mm -hmm. You can have an oolong tea that's really similar to green, Mm -hmm. and then you can have this really toasted, roasted, like malty black tea that's Consider oolong. How did Taiwan come to identify with oolong versus one of these other teas? So based on the origin of oolong tea, it's from southern China, in mm-hmm. Fujian, and a lot of the people of Taiwan are from that area. I see. So I think they just brought the plant over, mm-hmm. started the tradition, mm-hmm. and it just flourished from there. On a, With a twist on this oolong, though, you have introduced ucha. Right. Now this is right, piggybacking a little bit on the popularity of matcha. Yeah, it's a it's a crazy craze right now. Matcha. Yeah. So, <laughs> so matcha is if I'm if I'm understanding correctly is green tea, non oxidized tea, right? Pulverized into little bits, right? And then kind of whipped up and blended with a hot water. Or yeah, hot liquid, correct. Right? Yeah. Yeah. What, why is that so gangbusters? I have no idea to be honest. <laughs> like, it I, shows up at like Starbucks. I think they even have matcha now. They do. I don't know. I think a lot of Americans love adding milk to everything. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I don't I don't blame them because I add milk in my coffee mm-hmm. and occasionally I'll add milk to my tea. Mm-hmm. I'm going to pretend you didn't say that you drink coffee. <laughs> <laughs> I said occasionally. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> um, so matcha lends itself to milk, which is in keeping with kind of American beverage. Right. And I, I, that's, I guess how you kind of like lure Americans or new consumers <laughs> yeah. to try something different. Yes. Is you add milk or you add sugar. Or you could put cheese on it. Or you could put cheese on it. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to be surprised if somebody comes up with a matcha cheese. Yeah. <laughs> but so that's popular all over the world, right? Right, right. But Ucha, it's making that... S- same tea from oolong, am I correct? Yeah, you are correct. It's actually making the same tea from an oolong. You brought some here for us to drink, so let's yeah. let's let's just go for it. Go, for, yeah. It's a beautiful pea green color. Right. Crack it open. I'm gonna pour you a little bit here. Thank you. And then we're gonna take a sip here. Mmm. Good. It's good. There's like right? a little. Am I crazy? There's a little lemony. In there? Yeah, and it's like a, it's got a very sweet undertone. Yeah, there's like a it. melon kind yeah. of thing in there too. Yeah, and it's definitely got the grassy thing which most green right. teas have. But it does. It's not bitter like mm. your traditional matcha. So do you think this could maybe topple coffee? Or are we stuck with frappuccinos? That's <laughs> gonna be hard. <laughs> I'm trying though. I'm trying though. Yeah.
And Rico, it's a dark day when even a tea distributor concedes mm. the battle to coffee. Yeah, a dark, roasted day. Sad. Rich with a hint of acidity. <laughs> All right, people, coming up, actor Emily Mortimer, co-creator of the HBO series Doll and M, tells us why Shakespeare went to the dogs. And we chat with the author of one of the season's hottest biographies. It's about writer Joan Didion. That and more when the Dinner Party download continues. Right after this tea break. No. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the arts and leisure section of public radio. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. In a few minutes, we learn why the internet loves Joan Didion. But first, let's meet our guest of honor. All right. It's British actor and writer Emily Mortimer. She played the wealthy, cheated-upon wife in Woody Allen's Matchpoint. She appeared in the Martin Scorsese films Shutter Island and Hugo. But her latest project is a TV series, the comedy Doll and M, which she created with her best friend Dolly Wells. Emily plays M, a well-known actor. Dolly plays Doll, her best friend. I'm sensing a theme here in this week's show. Yeah, we'll get to that. <laughs> uh, in the first season of the show, M hires Doll as her assistant. And in the second season, which premieres this week on HBO, the two write and attempt to direct an off-Broadway play together. When I spoke to Emily, I welcomed her to the show like this. And the real Emily, it's great to have you here. It's great to be here. So uh, to address an elephant in the room, elsewhere in this show, we speak with Julie Klausner who plays a version of herself in the series Difficult People. There was the Ricky Gervais show Extras, in which stars played versions of themselves. There are many examples I could bring up. Of course, the series Louie. What is the appeal, first of all, to actors of this era to take themselves on as characters, do you think? It's a very interesting question and one that I'm sure somewhere people are (laughs) writing theses on as we speak. It definitely seems to be a sort of fashion of the modern age, but I feel like the modern age is full of examples of public and private lives becoming crossed over, the public being private and the private being public and all Mm. sorts of confusion in that area. Even the um, film Birdman, which won all the Oscars this last year, that that was, and watching that movie, just as we'd wrapped Doll and M, um, (laughs) we saw so many parallels. We were like, oh my gosh, someone already beat us to it. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I mean, I, 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 every time I, put a picture on Instagram or tweet something. I just am filled with sort of self-disgust <laughs> and and confusion. Yeah, yeah. This is an area which is ripe with investigation, you know, where, as I said, our private lives have become ever more public, and, even, and even for people who aren't in the public eye. I hadn't thought about it because it is true whenever you put up uh, a picture of yourself on Instagram or post something on Facebook, you're sort of creating a character of you that you want the world to see and is it you exactly i mean what we had real fun with on the show was me and dolly my real life best friend and collaborator um Mm. have known each other for many 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 years since we were four and so what we do with the show in both seasons is we set up this very extremely real dynamic between us which is really real so we talk to each other how we talk to each other in real life call each other by our real names you set up this authenticity for the audience which is then extremely disconcerting when when things start to go wrong yeah and it gives you all sorts of opportunities for making an audience squirm (laughs) (laughs) which i think i I see a lot of british comedy doing increasingly putting the screws to the audience but let me yeah it's interesting you bring up that 
conflict between the two characters. It mainly comes from a power imbalance. Emily, the character, has the fancy career and way more options than Dolly in a lot of ways. What was the root of that idea? Did that actually play out with you and Dolly in real life? No, thank God. I don't think we could have possibly sat down to write this together had it been that way. But, um, well, first of all, we just found it a sort of gruesomely fascinating topic. (laughs) And we'd had experience sort of witnessing this relationship between film stars and their assistants and how what a weird dynamic that can sometimes be because very often they're people who are from the same sort of socioeconomic background they're the Mm. same age the same sex they've got a lot in common apart from one serving the other and often those people are very good friends or they and they become very good friends inevitably because they're the closest people to each other on earth the only people you can trust in a lot of ways yes but there's still something kind of screwed up about it. And it's like, you know, what happens when you're just relaxing on the sofa together? Is is the assistant the one that goes to get the ice cream when you're just watching a movie, you know? Actually, um, we have a clip of that scene, which is from season one. We should roll it. Sure. Uh, this is Emily and Dahl sitting on the couch, very tired, uh, right after Emily has hired Dahl as her assistant. I think there's some ice cream in the fridge. Yum. Do you want some? Yes, please. I can get it. Oh, don't be daft. I'll get it. No, I'll get it. All part of the job. Don't be stupid. (laughs) I'm joking. Is it part of the job? Oh, it's so awkward. (laughs) Yeah, so there was just a sort of macabre fascination with that relationship. But then we did get really interested in exploring jealousy as an emotion which I think is a very underexplored emotion because it's something that I think everybody feels all the time and we feel it especially for the people that we love the most and for whom we want the most you know our best friends or our spouses their success inevitably makes you kind of reflect back (laughs) on your own it's so true lack of it so I think that there's a sort of confessional aspect to both seasons where it's like outing these kind of awkward feelings that's Dolly and my friendship is really about that. It's sort of confessing the weird, <laughs> screwed up stuff that goes on inside our brains and telling each other things. And then the other person forgiving you and actually finding you kind of funny for saying it. Now, that being said, it does shine through in the show that these two people really love each other. But they do spend about 40 percent of the time wanting to kill each other, I would estimate. <laughs> yes. Tell me about the time making this show that you most wanted to kill. <laughs> Doll. I most wanted to kill her. Um <laughs> God, I really need to come up with... Because people are longing to know yeah. about how much we hate each other in real we, life. And we we can need never, to feel we, that because otherwise it's too perfect. We can perfect. never satisfy them. Our friends and family get very irritated by us <laughs> while we're making the show. Particularly my mother. I mean, both of our mothers are in this season. And finally on the last night, we had the last night rap party and we all came home and she said, how was it? And I was like, oh, mom, it was amazing. They were all so sort of enthused and everybody had had such a great time and said that it was one of the things they'd enjoyed working on most and mum just looked at me and went that usually means it's going to be (laughs) (laughs) I just thought oh my god you hate me I haven't noticed you've been quietly hating me it's the the jealousy thing it's her own child she can't on some level stand it (laughs) that you pulled it off Um, we have two questions that we ask everyone on the show yes and the first one is if we were to meet you at a dinner party what's the question you would least like to be asked 
I don't, there is a set, there is a question in interviews, which I find very annoying, but I don't think men get asked how they balance family life with their career. Oh, interesting. I don't really think they ever get asked that. But it is, although that's in your your show. I mean, that is a theme of the show, is how Emily balances her family life with her work. Yes, of course. And of course, it's something that is interesting, but it's just such a trick question. It's such a trap for a woman, I think, because no matter what you say, you're sort of irritating. Um, (laughs) If you say, oh, it's not a problem at all, then people hate you. And if you say... Oh, you know, I feel so guilty and racked with remorse about leaving my darling children when I go off to work. Everyone thinks, yeah, it's really hard for you, you know, turning up some film set and being waited on. But generally, I love being asked questions. I don't want to put people off asking me questions. I'm pathetically grateful to be asked a question. All right, noted. Well, here's our here's our last question. It's actually more of an order, really, which is tell us something we don't know. Um, apparently Queen Elizabeth I found dogs very amusing. Okay. And would laugh uproariously whenever she saw a dog. And so Shakespeare would try to get dogs into his plays as often as possible just to give Queen Elizabeth I a a titter. Yeah, apparently there's a dog in Two Gentlemen of Verona, which is no reason to be there apart from just whenever Queen Elizabeth I saw a dog, she just (laughs) herself laughing. Did you know that? We think Shakespeare is this great genius. Really, he's a pandering hack. (laughs) Emily Mortimer, she co-created and stars in the comedy series Doll and M. The second season debuts this week on HBO. Enrico, I have to admit I'm a little jealous you got to interview her. Oh, and now I'm supposed to say... I love you for admitting it and I forgive you or something. I guess so. I, th- I think that's how it works. Uh, a healthy collaboration feels weird, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, let's just do what we always do and not talk about it. About what? Oh, much better. When you host a show called The Dinner Party Download, people inevitably ask you for your dream party guest. And at the top of my list has always been journalist, author, and screenwriter Joan Didion. A new biography about her just came out. It's called The Last Love Song. While reading it around the office, I was surprised to discover how many people weren't familiar with Didion. So when I met with the bio's author, Tracy Doherty, I asked him how he described her to the uninitiated. She began in the late 1950s and early 1960s as a magazine writer and a journalist. And I think really broke uh, in the late 60s with some personal essays that were collected in a book called Slouching Towards Bethlehem. And they were very jazzy, fragmented pieces that I think captured the turbulence of the 1960s. And uh, it was a kind of music in her prose that that really uh, appealed to a lot of people. So she became kind of uh, infamous. This book is about her writing. It doesn't contain her writing. But I'm wondering if you could just share a snippet of of some of her writing from your book so people get a sense of how her writing works. Sure. This is from her essay, Some Dreamers of the Golden Dream, uh, describing a day in California which is beautiful but also has a kind of undertow of doom to it. So this is kind of Mm. typical Didion. It was a bright, warm day in Southern California, the kind of day when Catalina floats on the Pacific horizon and the air smells of orange blossoms. A 70-year-old pensioner drove his station wagon at five miles an hour past three Gardena poker parlors and emptied three pistols and a 12-gauge shotgun through their windows, wounding 29 people. Many young women became prostitutes just to have enough money to play cards, he explained in a note. Mrs. Nick Adams said that she was not surprised to hear her husband announce his divorce plans on the Les Crane show 
and farther north, a 16-year-old jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge and lived. It's, it's really evocative, and I love your follow-up to that uh, is, oh, that kind of day. <laughs> yes. With the, that italicize. What's great about her, and this is, I think this does kind of get to the heart of much of her writing, is that all of those incidents are not really connected. They're, they're quite random. You can pick them out of a newspaper, you know, and yet she combines them in such a way that they begin not to seem random. They seem connected, and they seem to portend that something awful is going to happen. And that's just a brilliant prose style. So clearly there's a literary sensibility at work in that writing. And that, as well as incorporating personal details and a point of view, are uh, some of the things that distinguish new journalism, which is a type of journalism that Didion created, along with Thomas Wolfe and Norman Mailer and others. How did she end up in a position to practice this sort of writing? In many ways, she stumbled into new journalism. Um, she, She began writing for Vogue magazine, uh, they would assign her s- some topics like uh, write about morality or uh, mm. write about marriage and friendship. And uh, she took a very personal approach to it and stuck herself into the stories. So then later, when she began to cover more public events like politics and social unrest, she continued to insert herself into the story in a very personal way. And that was a kind of a unique form of journalism. So as you say, along with Tom Wolfe and Norman Mailer and many others, she kind of pioneered this new form of subjective journalism. She says there's no such thing as objectivity. Unless you know where the storyteller stands, you can't really know how the story is being told. Which sets up an interesting challenge for a biographer because, in a way, she's already revealing who she is and some of the intimate details of her life, her her drinking, her marital woes. These are often the things a biographer kind of (laughs) brings to light. (laughs) Um, As a biographer, your job was what? To kind of verify this information and kind of talk about the context that surrounded her sharing that information? Initially, I thought that my job would be to try to either confirm or deny the stories she told about herself. But as I got into the project, I I realized she's a candid writer, but she's not really a confessional writer. She chooses what to put in and what to leave out. So as she seems to be revealing a great deal about herself, she's actually withholding things. And so I began to think that my job really was to try to think about Joan Didion in her cultural context. So along with including personal details, new journalism also allowed the author to incorporate points of view. Didion certainly had a point of view. And uh, it often ran counter to what she was covering in the culture, Mm -hmm. be it hippies in the 60s or the Reagans in the 80s. What would you say her point of view was? She's often talked about as uh, someone who went from being a political conservative to becoming a political liberal. But I I think that's too reductive. I don't think she's ever been a very ideological writer. Uh, I think her point of view and her politics really boil down to uh, just wanting people to be honest and principled. Whatever their political viewpoint, as long as they're authentic and principled, uh, she, she's okay with that. And if they are not, she will go after them. There is also uh, in her writing, and I guess I'm thinking of Slouching Towards Bethlehem, nonfiction essays written about Haight-Asbury, uh, the kind of LSD scene in San Francisco. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In that work, she's writing about what was sexy stuff at the time, like hippies and drugs, and but she's looking at it through a pretty conservative lens, and I don't just mean that politically. She seems almost disgusted by the recklessness 
um, and the kind of blind romanticism that was part of that? Exactly. I think that's that's what made her seem so fresh, is she was writing about sexy topics, but as you say, she was taking a different stance than many other journalists of the time were. When Tom Wolfe, for example, wrote about the LSD culture and Ken Kesey, Tom Wolfe even dropped acid just to have the experience. Yeah. He wanted to be part of it. Didion never went that far. She inserted herself into the story, but she never wanted to participate. She was always on the periphery, looking at it slightly askance. Her prose took on the sexiness, the jazziness, the fragmented quality, but her point of view was... Let's be a little slower to uh, to accept this. And speaking of sexy topics, Joan Didion, in, now in 2015, seems more fashionable than ever. It is amazing, her, her celebrity. Yeah, she's 80 now, and this year she modeled for Celine, a kind of hip fashion line. It's hard to scroll through Instagram without encountering a cool image of her from the 60s. What do you think accounts for her current popularity? Well, in some ways, her pro style may have been tailor-made for the internet era, writing in a kind of fragmented, elusive style that at the time seemed uh, kind of hard to grasp. Nowadays, with our short attention spans and our, our desire to jump from link to link, we're learning to read in different ways. And this kind of style uh, fits right That's into interesting. it. That's interesting. I would also add that her kind of dark view of the world, I feel like that resonates with the modern audience. Certainly. And then if you Google search Joan Didion, you'll see very cool photos of her. She's this beautiful woman. Mm -hmm. uh, she has a beautiful husband. They're both stylish. They're often smoking cigarettes in these cool surroundings <laughs> yeah. in L.A. It's like she herself is a fictional character from Hollywood. Oh, I think that's a great point. Yeah, she's, she's got it all. She's got the glamour and she's also got the doom. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and so it, 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 it fits the age. Tracy Darty, author of the Joan Didion biography, The Last Love Song. By the way, Didion did not authorize the book. To hear why Tracy wrote it anyway, head to dinnerpartydownload.org. All right, that's our show for this week. And here's a heads up. Next week, we'll be doing a live event as part of LA Podfest. Our guests Woo. include funny man Paul Shear. That's right, he's star of the league. Grab your tickets now. Or if you're not an Angelino, you can buy access to live stream all the shows at the festival. The link's on our website. Fancy. Yes. Jackson Musker produces the Dinner Party Download. Nina Patak is our associate producer, and Christina Lopez is our associate digital producer. Daniel Ramirez and Robbie Carmen engineered. Our executive producer is Peter Clowney. See you next time, and bon appétit.